0: And may that be our prayer as we come to God's word this morning, that he would break the bread of life for us, that he would make our eyes see and our ears hear. Let's take up our Bibles and open them up to Mark's Gospel, it's chapter 12, this morning. Mark chapter 12. Particularly, we will be reading verses 38 through 44, right there at the end of the chapter. Beginning then in verse 38 of Mark chapter 12, this, let us be reminded, is God's word. This is God speaking to us today. Let us pay good attention to it and be humble before it. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Let's pray as we get ready to look at this this morning. Lord, we, we confess our weakness of mind to understand, and we thank you that you have granted to us your spirit, and we pray that he would be our teacher this morning. Pray that the, the words that I speak would not uh, get in his way, uh, but that's, that your word would be brought before your people in a way profitable to them. Bless us, Lord, as we hear your word, as we consider it today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in these verses that we have just read, we come to this morning, we really come to the end of the public ministry of Jesus. Now, he will, of course, certainly continue to be teaching, but beginning, beginning in chapter 13, actually beginning sort of in the second half of our passage this morning, the focus of Christ will shift now for the last time away from the the general public and will turn toward his disciples, his 12 apostles particularly. Remember that recently Jesus has been in the temple courtyards teaching, having a, a series of discussions, probably more accurate to call them confrontations, with members of this Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, made up primarily, remember, of Pharisees and Sadducees, divided into the high priests and the elders and the scribes. The scribes were the chief interpreters of Jewish law. They were typically associated with the the group known as the Pharisees. Uh, Last week, we saw Jesus... Speak against the, or expose really, the theological error of these scribes in regard to the nature of this long awaited Messiah, whom Jesus was, whom he ful- or which he fulfilled. And he spoke against their error and their misunderstanding. That was a theological error. Now, this morning, Jesus turns his attention. Uh, to issue a warning to the people regarding the moral failings of these religious leaders, of these scribes. Now, obviously, not every scribe falls into these categories and is guilty of of the things that Jesus is going to mention. Uh, Remember, a couple weeks ago, Jesus spoke to a scribe who had came to him, and remember, his evaluation of the scribe was that he was not far from the kingdom of God, up in verse 34. But the description that Jesus gives here applies to the scribes generally. And as the scribes are the the representatives of God's word and the teachers of God's word to his people, this is clearly a strong condemnation of them. A condemnation which, which sadly would also hold for those who hold a largely equivalent office today and where similar failings, similar sins are also sadly present in those who teach in the church today. But we're going to look at three aspects of Jesus' comments that, that are here in these verses. We're going to first look At his warning concerning the scribes. Then we'll look at his observations about a widow. And finally, we will consider his teaching on value in the kingdom of God. But first, as is first in our text, we want to look at his warning that he gives concerning these scribes, sometimes um, called lawyers in the Gospels, the teachers of the law, the experts in the Bible. These are the ones that he's referring to here. As we come to this, as we look at the beginning of this passage in Mark here, we should note that this is sort of a, a snippet of what was actually said. This is only part of what Jesus said on this occasion. Notice there in verse 38, it says, And in his teaching he said... That is, that what, is, what follows is part of what he said there in the temple on this day. Matthew gives us a much more detailed and a much more devastating understanding of Jesus' comments. In fact, whereas Mark here gives a little bit about Jesus' warning to the people about the scribes, And Matthew does as well. But along with that, Matthew records where Jesus then turns his attention specifically to the scribes and directly confronts the scribes and the Pharisees, pronouncing curses upon them for the way that they have acted, the way that they have conducted themselves in regard to God's Word and in regard to the people. But here in Mark, We get the warning to the people, and he begins there in verse 38 by saying, Beware of the scribes. Be wary of them. Watch out for them. Pay attention and see what they're really like. And what a sad thing it is that Jesus has to warn his people, his sheep, about those who were supposed to care for them. But this is what we read about in our Old Testament reading in Ezekiel 34. The shepherds of God's people then and here Uh, were we're, we're focused on themselves. We're focused on their comfort, on, on their own benefit. We read, my sheep have become a prey and the shepherds have fed themselves and not fed my sheep. And that's what's going on here, Jesus is saying. That's the scribes for you. So beware of them. Beware of the scribes. Beware of their hypocrisy. Beware of their self-regard, their self-aggrandizement. Their desire is not for you, as it should be. It's for themselves. And so watch it. Watch out for them. In fact, he gives then six ways in which that is true, six ways that the scribes are guilty of this. He says, first, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. The scribes were addicted to this showiness, uh, which marked them out as important, the external things that, that showed that these were scribes and these were important men. They wear long robes. They walk around in long robes. Now, many Jewish people wore prayer shawls especially when they prayed, but the scribes wore and walked around in these long, flowing, sacred robes that reached, they reached all the way to the ground. They were made of white linen, which was not common. It was the, the fancy clothes. They had tassels on their clothes. These were the, the clothes that would be recognized, and that was why they wore them, so that they would be easily recognized as scribes, as important people. The word there for these robes is the same word in the parable of the prodigal son that's translated or described as the best robe. The father said, bring the best robe and put it on my son. The scribes are saying, we'll wear the best robes, and by doing that, you will know how important we are. It's the same word that's used for the robes that are worn by the saints in the book of Revelation. And the scribes, Jesus says, like to. They take great pleasure in walking around in such robes so as to telegraph their importance to the people. Because... Jesus says that's their heart. That was their focus, for people to see them as important people. So that's how he starts off. Beware of them. They like to walk around in long robes. You know, in contrast to that, remember Jesus said, if anyone would be first, he must be last and a servant of all. That's not the heart. Of the scribes, So, Jesus says, beware of them. And he says that they like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. Again, beware of them because they seek attention. See, their focus is, is here on me, on themselves. They seek attention. They seek the praise of others in, in public places. The scribes were very highly respected people. And rightly so, they held an important role, an important office. Their words, the words of a scribe, were taken as having great authority. When the scribes, though, would walk down the street or through the marketplace, people would rise if they were seated in order to greet the, the scribes as they go by rabbi a word that up until this time was sort of a general word for a teacher but at this time was beginning to to sort of be attached more and more to these experts in the law and it was a lofty term and they liked that as the people would rise and greet them rabbi master They like that. They took great pleasure, Jesus says, in that attention and that honor. Next, he says, beware the scribes because they like to have the best seats in the synagogue. That, too, is just another way that the scribes like to be noticed and to be elevated above others. They take pleasure in having places of prominence not only in the marketplace, not only on the street but in the synagogues, in the religious places. The synagogues, of course, were the places of regular religious gathering among the Jews. They were the places where you would go. They were like church. You would go, you would sit, you would hear the Scripture read, you would sing, you would pray. That's what the synagogues were in those days. And the best seats in the synagogues. It's interesting; they were not like our best seats. But what made them the best seats was not the position that that you were in. It's interesting how uh, the definition that I think our churches might have of the best seats. We were Cindy and I used to attend a, a very large uh, non-denominational church. And the best seat were the the pews in the front, the chairs in the front. And if you wanted a seat in the front, you had to get there early because that's where everybody wanted to sit. I think sometimes our understanding of the best seats is is like those back in the back. Um. But the best seats in a synagogue were a little different. Up at the front of a synagogue, they would have a chest that that would have the scroll of the law in it, and they would take it out and, and read from it. And the best seats in the synagogue then were seats that were up against that chest and faced that way. It's like if we were to take this pew and set it down there in front of the communion table, that would be the best seats, the choice seats. Makes me think of, I also grew up in a, in a Pentecostal church. And when you were in that sort of type of churches they would very often on the platforms of their churches, they would have pews like these in the back. And if there were any visiting ministers or anything like that, they would sit up here instead of sitting out there with the common people uh, where they could be seen, I think, where they, they could be the honors, honored. But the scribes loved that too. And they wanted those seats. They expected those seats. And they very often got those seats. Remember, James warned against that kind of thing, though, didn't he? In James 2, he, he wrote the warning against showing the partiality, not expecting it there, but showing it. For those who come into your synagogue, he said that if you give the chief seat to the rich and you tell the poor, well, you sit at my feet, you sit back there, uh, you sit on the on the floor, he says, if you do that kind of thing, you have become judges with evil thoughts. But that is another way that the, the scribes want to be seen by men. At the same time, the same thing was true at feasts. This is the fourth of the six things. The scribes love the place of honor at feasts. They want to be next to the host, they want to be in the, the elevated seats, they want to be at the head table where everyone will notice them and everyone will see them and take note of how important they are. What did Jesus say about that kind of thing? Uh, over in, in Luke chapter 14, I think we see, we see that. Um, he says, this is a parable that Jesus told. Now, he, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone, Jesus said, who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The scribes, Jesus is saying here, prefer to honor themselves. So they advertise their position. They revel at others' recognition of it and at the honor that people give to them. But then it gets even worse. Not only are they self aggrandizing glory hogs, but they are treacherous hypocrites as well. Verse 40 this is the fifth of the sixth. Verse 40 describes them and says that we are to, or you are to beware of them who devour widows' houses. What a graphic sort of picture here. Someone just opening up their mouth and devouring someone's house. How do they do that? Well, we're not told exactly, but they had many opportunities to. The scribes, again, were, were very influential. Scribes would often even assist people with financial affairs. And that opened up all sorts of ways for them to, to take advantage of people, especially the the ones who are more able to be taken advantage of uh, through dishonesty, through fraud. Uh, Luke in his record of, of this teaching says Jesus records Jesus saying, You cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and you're full of wickedness. Burdens placed upon people, even financial burdens, leveled by the scribes against those in society often most unable to shoulder them, the widows. Scribes were, as a rule, not particularly wealthy, but they depended on gifts, freewill offerings, if you will, coming from the people, and some would exploit that. Some would exploit certain classes of people, widows, for example, in a a heartless way. A common practice then, as now, uh, many took advantage of widows. Many took advantage of the elderly, which the Old Testament describes as being particularly despicable to God. We see it today. And we see it very very often, very blatantly uh, at times with these TV preachers who do the same thing, who shout and, and cry on their TV soundstage and twist the scripture as they manipulate people watching them from home, manipulate them to give, to call that number on your screen, and they don't care whether the people giving can afford it or not, whether they go into debt to call the number on the screen. And so often the ones sitting at home watching this garbage are the elderly, the, the widows, the ones who are least able to afford this. And you hear uh, quite regularly of people who lose their, give their, their savings to these Shysters. They and their people and their retirements and their social security checks and their lives and their homes devoured by these people. That's what the scribes were doing in their day. Very dangerous of them to do, considering, again, how God spoke of the poor and the orphans and the widows and those who exploit or mistreat them. Let me just give you a short example here from Isaiah 10. He says, Woe, that's a word of curse, woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right that widows may be their spoil that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your well? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. A dangerous game these scribes are playing, and Jesus says here, beware of them. And all the while, Jesus says that for a pretense, they make long prayers. They're hypocrites. Now, there's obviously nothing wrong with long prayers, but long prayers for a pretense, long prayers for appearance sake, for show, hypocritical prayer, that's what Jesus is charging the scribes with and warning against. These are the types of prayers that Jesus warned about earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Where he said, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, Jesus said, they have their reward. But when you pray, he said, Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, Jesus is not saying here, obviously, that one cannot pray in a synagogue or a church or on the street corner any more than he's saying here that you have to have a special prayer closet where you go to pray. Our Lord, in the Sermon on the, on the Mount and his words here, he is condemning prayer that is just for show, that are a show. Prayers don't have to be that way, shouldn't be that way. And prayers don't have to be long either. They don't have to be in King James English either. They don't have to explain to God the whole situation. Lord, you know how John has struggled with this situation, how it started when he was in college and now it affected not just his grades, but his relationship with his mom and dad and, and you know how we all cried when he dropped out of school. You, know, you don't have to do that. Most of the time, people who do that are informing the people around them. Makes me think of a situation that happened once. I think it was at one of the churches that, that I attended before. We were getting ready to, to pray before going out and, and, well, confession, true confession times. I was in a phrase band for a long time and before we went out one time, we it was it was the you know hold hands and pray and everybody would pray before we went out. And when it got to me, I I had my head down and I prayed a little bit. And somebody down at the end says, "We couldn't hear you." And I said, "Well, that's okay. I wasn't talking to you." Um, the point here is that. Prayers don't have to be long. They don't have to have all of these things. Now, what do they have to be? They have to be from the heart. They have to be to the one true God. They have to be according to his revealed will. They have to be in recognition of our need and our dependence and knowing that we don't deserve it, but that God hears us for Christ's sake. Those things they need to be. But the point here is that the scribes would make these very public, very long, very ostentatious prayers, while with the other hand, they devoured widows' houses. They took advantage. They padded their own pockets. And these are the characteristics of the scribes and the things that Jesus' listeners need to be beware of. The externalism. Uh, the favoritism, hypocrisy, oppression. Those are all improper, uh, especially for those who are in positions of authority over God's people. Contrary to the great commandments which taught love of God and love of neighbor, these men trafficked in love of self and love of position and love of prestige. And we see it in the church today. We see it in pastors of churches today because today pastors, religious leaders have a lot of sway in people's lives and they're supposed to. Their words, like the scribes' words, are accounted as authoritative and they're supposed to be because those men are supposed to be giving God's word, not their words. But the the position of a Pastor of an elder is often very open to abuse and misuse. It would be very easy for a pastor to turn his congregation into a platform for his own personal advancement, and we see that every once in a while when it comes out in the news that the leaders of a church have been bilking their people out of their life savings or spiritually abusing them. So at the conclusion of this, we are not told what happened, but I would venture a guess here that the scribes probably left. We've already been told that after Jesus answered their questions, and back in verse 34, it says, after that, no one dared ask him any questions. And after this, especially if you listen to the, read the FM version, that's what we used to call it, the long version, in Matthew 23, Probably unlikely that they stuck around. But we read then in verse 41 that he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. It was sort of a change of, of scene, a change of sort of the feel of the passage from Jesus giving this warning to now the time where Jesus just sits down and observes. On the temple grounds there in Jerusalem, remember that around the temple proper, there were, all these, there were several courtyards, places where, where people could gather. The outermost, the largest, was called the Court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles could come uh, to worship. That's where the conversations, by the way, that we've been looking at over the past few weeks have, have played out. Next was what was called the Court of the Women. And that's just called that because that was as far as women could come Uh, Toward the temple. Men and women could both come into that courtyard. And that's where this takes place. Because in this courtyard, the court of the women, there was what was known as the treasury. And that's where we read that Jesus sits down, sits down opposite the treasury, near it, sits down and watches. The treasury was the place where people would give their offerings, Um, their contributions. Offerings were brought into the temple and made there. And we learned from historians that in this area, in the Court of the Women, that there were 13 receptacles, 13 sort of trumpet-shaped uh, containers. And these were for the people to make these offerings. And, and they were marked with what special need they were for. It's like our offering bag that we, we send around when we take the benevolence offering. We've got the blue stripe on the one that says this is for benevolence. Well, it's sort of that thing. There, there was on these 13 receptacles, there were marked, or they were marked for special purposes. The temple tax was, was one of them. Animals for sacrifices they could put money into if they had come from a long way and didn't bring animals with them. They could put money in here and then a sacrifice would be made on their behalf uh, there were other others like that for the construction of the temple, and free will offerings were given here. And around that area, then Mark tells us that Jesus sat down opposite the treasury. He just sits and watches. Sounds like a rare moment where Jesus sort of has time to relax here. He says, and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. And Mark notes that many rich people put in large sums. These these sort of trumpet-shaped collection units were made of metal, of brass or some metal like that, so it was easy to hear how much, relatively speaking, was being put in, especially when the rich were contributing because they were usually quite happy to make it known just how much they were contributing. And that's okay, they were contributing a lot. Some people give more than others. And Jesus is watching. But then something catches his eye. Along comes one of the aforementioned widows that the scribes so easily took advantage of. And she is described here as a a poor widow. I mean, it's very unlikely that there would have been any other kind, but that's how she's described. And Jesus sees her come, come along, and, and probably in contrast to those who with great flair cast their offering into the box and her probably hoping to make as little sound as possible, Mark says that she put in two small copper coins which make a penny. The coins that she is said to contribute, according to the, the original, were very, very small, crudely cast copper coins. They were the smallest in circulation. In fact, uh, some research I was doing uh, said that it was possible that this was the lowest value coin ever struck by any nation in all of history. About the size of a, about the diameter of a pencil eraser, this little dinky coin here, called a lepta, and Mark lets us know its monetary value by comparing it to the lowest value value roman coin that's translated here as a penny her offering was about one sixty-fourth of a denarius which was a, a typical day laborers take and jesus notices the stark contrast between what the many had put in what the rich had put in and what this widow had given Of course, she's probably not the only poor person here, but her offering and what Jesus knows about her makes her a perfect object lesson for the disciples. And in verse 43, then, Jesus wants to make this point, and so he calls his disciples over. And that brings us to his teaching on value in the kingdom of God. So Jesus now is no longer speaking publicly against the scribes but he's adding depth he's adding some application to his disciples and here he sets against the presumptuous and ostentatious actions of the scribes and the rich the poor actions of this widow and he says in verse 43 that he called his disciples to him and said to them truly i say to you this poor woman has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box for they all contributed out of their abundance But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus says that the value of her offering far outweighs what the rich have put in because she gave sacrificially and therefore meaningfully. By the way, in another display of his deity and thus his supernatural knowledge, he adds that what she put in was all that she had to live on. That was it for her. Now, this isn't an attack on wealth or the wealthy per se, but on the idea which is often held by the rich that the amount is what determines the value of the gift. The value and the contrast are given here quite explicitly by Jesus there in verse 44. They all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty is put in everything she had. Jesus is saying here that that it's the, the devotion, it's the dedication, it's the attitude of the giver, the sacrificial nature of the giver coming from a sacrificial attitude in the heart, that that is what is important. For the rich to contribute a large amount doesn't constitute a sacrifice for them. They hardly bat an eye though many of them would blow a trumpet, Matthew 6 tells us, to be sure everyone heard them. Now, of course, Jesus could add, Jesus knew that $1,000 would go farther than $1.50, but as far as the true expression of the heart goes, the amount is not the deciding factor. And again, this is not a judgment on wealth. Some people are as generous and sacrificial as in their giving as they are wealthy. Others aren't. And of course, Jesus had spoken earlier on how much stronger temptation there is for rich people to sort of be focused on their riches in preserving and to increase them. And Jesus, remember, concluded that therefore it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Was that because of their riches? No, it's because of their attitude towards their riches, because of their idolatry of their riches. Now, this also isn't a glorification of poverty. It's not a teaching that we need to take a vow of poverty. Uh, We're not being told here that we have to give everything to the church. But the point of the widow and the reason Jesus points her out is not because she gave all she had but because she was willing to give all that she had for the kingdom. She loved God, she trusted God enough and thought enough of herself that she would do that. The widow is not blessed because she was poor, but because she was willing to be poorer for the kingdom of God. And the point this morning in in this aspect of this is that in God's kingdom, the heart is more important than the bank account. The value of one one widow's sacrificial devotion to God, which was reflected in her offering, was greater than the, the huge amounts that the wealthy were lining up to put in, especially those of the scribes who may have acquired a good portion of their wealth by devouring the livelihood of widows. You see the the contrast between these two episodes, between the scribes and the widow and their attitude, their outlook. By the way, it's a testament here to God's grace and providence that this woman gave all that she had and that that brought her a certain... Immortality, because her meager but meaningful gift was noticed by Christ, was written in the pages of Scripture, so that we, though we don't know anything else about her, are still talking about her today. But this idea of her giving all should, of course, cause us to think of another who was willing to become poor for the good of God's kingdom. Paul said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus did not consider his position in the heavens something to be held onto at all costs, Paul says to the Philippians. But he came to us to be one of us and gave up everything, even his life, for our salvation. And he came to save you, Christian. And he saves all of you. He doesn't just save a part of you, he saves you body, soul, mind, emotion, everything. And therefore, he tells us that we are to love God as he did a few, several verses ago, a few chapters ago. We are to love God with all of us heart and soul and mind. And with, with our time, with our strength, with our resources, with our financial resources. After all, it's all His because he created it and because he has purchased you and all that you are through the death of his son. Some people he has blessed with great gifts, great abilities, physical, mental, material, financial. Others, probably more others, he's Blessed with what seems to be more meager gifts, like us here. But all of his gifts that he has given, the scripture says to each one by the Spirit, are given for us to use for God and for his people. Beloved people of God, let us remember today what God has given to us. And let us then, in undying gratitude, willingly, joyfully give back to Him. Whether it's financial or whatever the gifts are that He has given to you. Let us seek to discern how and where God would have us to give sacrificially to His kingdom of our finances, of our time, of our gifts, of our labor, of our skills and always with thanksgiving. And let us not seek to have glory reckoned to us for these things, but let us seek God's glory in what we get. Let us seek God to be raised up and exalted and worshiped and glorified. And to that, let's say amen. Father, we thank you. We thank you for sending your son. We thank you that he was willing to come and to become poor, that through his poverty we might become rich, that through him giving his life that we may be recipients of eternal life. And we pray, Lord, that as the Spirit then has been sent to dwell in us and to give gifts to us, we pray, Father, that you would help us to give those gifts right back to use them for the good of your people and of your church we pray father that we would not seek our own glory that we would not seek to promote ourselves but that we would seek the glory of Christ in all things and we thank you in Jesus name amen